Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Radical Personal Finance is sponsored by Paladin Registry, the very best place for you to start your search for a financial advisor. See, the problem is when you just go out and start looking around online or walking down the street knocking on financial advisor doors, (laughs) like anybody does that, the problem is you don't know what you're getting. (laughs) You might wind up with someone good or you might wind up with someone not. Paladin Registry can help you start your search in a safer environment. They have a registry service of financial advisors who have been checked and verified, whose credentials have been checked into, whose disciplinary and ethics actions have been verified, and whose business models have been reviewed very, very carefully. Can't promise you're going to find a great financial advisor that fits your personality there, but at least you'll be interviewing people that you can have a greater confidence in, kind of like the screening mechanism that the world uses when they hire any kind of employee. It's called a resume. Well, at least here you can select from a pool of qualified candidates. Start your search at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash P-A-L-A-D-I-N slash Paladin. The show is also sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the modern up-to-date company for you to use when looking for loans or when seeking to refinance your existing debt to save money. SoFi stands for social finance, bunch of young Smart people got together and said, this industry stinks. It's so out of date and so antiquated. Let's kind of improve it a little bit and actually bring some modern technology to bear. Simple things like you know being able to fill out an app on your phone instead of having to do it all with faxes. Yes, much of the industry still uses faxes. Check the rates at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SoFi. Again, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash S-O-F-I, SoFi. Get, oh, what is it? 200 bucks, 100 bucks. Get extra cash by using that affiliate link from me, courtesy of me. Actually, comes from SoFi. But if you use that link, you get a couple extra hundred bucks credited to you, depending on the type of loan that you do. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SoFi. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Today, we tackle the subject of off-grid living. What would it be like if you chose to move out to the woods, set up a compound, and figure out how to make a living completely off-grid? week I was preparing the outline for my episode number 409, which is called How to Get Yourself Put Six Feet Under Dirt Cheap. And one of the aspects of that that I thought was really interesting was people who make simple pine coffins for people to be buried in. Well, in looking for cheap plans, I stumbled across these $5 pine coffin plans that were listed there, and they were hosted on a site called Piedmont Pine 
pinecoffins.com. And I started checking around, and I read this guy's story. He had an awesome story uh, where he's kind of living out in the woods, completely off-grid in North Carolina, and he makes his living with this little cottage business. So I dropped him an email and wanted to check with him to see if he'd be willing to come on the show, and he was. Enjoy this interview with Don Byrne and find out how he went off-grid in 2007 in order to live his vision of a radical, simple lifestyle. Don, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Nice to be with you, Joshua. I stumbled across your website, PiedmontPineCoffins.com, the other day when I was researching a show that I was doing on how to get stuck in the ground pretty cheap. And I came across your $5 coffin plan. I thought that was a great resource and wanted to share it. But as I was reading a little bit about your story, it seems like you do this crazy, weird, off-grid, simple living approach, and you operate a business at the same time. And I just thought, this sounds like the perfect... Uh, a very perfect radical personal finance story, and I wanted to get you on the line and just hear a little bit more uh, about um, uh, about uh, your story. So first of all, am I accurate? You live off the grid uh, here in the South, and you have a business, and you, you live totally off the grid. Is that right? That That's exactly right. Those are the things we've been aiming for since uh, 2007 when um, it, it was actually my father and I, we made the transition from... Um, sort of uh, urban life out into the countryside of central North Carolina. So you've built – so first of all, describe a little bit of your lifestyle. I've seen some pictures and read a little bit of your writing on, on, online. But of course my listeners, this is their first, um, their first introduction to you. So share with us a little bit about your lifestyle and what life looks like for you and why that was important to you. Sure, Joshua. The farm is 32 acres of woods and fields. And uh, when we bought it, it was um, kind of bare land, nothing built up on there. It used to be uh, cow pastures in central North Carolina. And um, well, my dad and I, we had this vision. Uh, this was back in 2007, kind of right before the, um, the real estate crash of 2008. And um, we had this vision of doing something fun together. And we had this also this this secondary vision of learning new skills, sort of simple skills, old timey skills that might, uh, you know, might help people survive if things got uh, rougher and tougher for any reason down the road. And both of those uh, motivations, the sort of the, the, the positive one, which was learning new skills and doing something fun together. And um, also the or the, sort of the negative one, the more fearful side of, oh, wow, what if what if uh, there's some type of collapse in society? Both of those have turned out to be kind of awesome, sustaining motivations for us as we, we kept going. So you bought 32 and, acres, you bought 32 acres without any major infrastructure on it. Where did you start? Right. Great question. We started with um, we started with water, putting in some some deep wells. And we started then with um, some access driveways, and um, in, in that it, that process took about uh, six months to get done. After that, it was time to put in a garden and get the cabin started. Um, so there are in, in our county, um, there's a regulation about uh, sort of about the, the size of a structure before you, you fall under the building code. So what we decided to do, Josh, was build 12 by 12 structures, the largest size that was acceptable, 12 by 12 cabins. And um, 
we kind of set it up, if, if you believe it, sort of like um, sort of like a, a little monastery where it was my my dad and his his monk cell, and I had my a cabinet with my little cell, and then we would come <laughs> together in in the refectory in the kitchen. So that originally there were there were three three structures, and uh, it it worked out great. Has that expanded now beyond three? It has. There, there are various um, store, storage sheds and garden sheds that we've added, and um, the the personnel at the little monastery has has changed. I laugh when I say that because, of course, we're not a monastery. Though we take inspiration from some monastic values and homesteader values down through the ages, um, the personnel changed. Now there's in, in what used to be my little little cell, my little cabin. There's now four human beings living there, my wife and two small children. Congratulations. And is your dad still with you as well? My dad, uh, for health reasons, has moved to a, an apartment in uh, in a nearby town. And um, so that, that cabin that he used to occupy is now the, the wood workshop for Piedmont Pine Coffins. Nice. So up until now, you've still maintained this habit of building <laughs> we're throwing in all kinds of monasterial words <laughs> this habit of building uh cabins smaller than 12 foot by 12 foot so that you can avoid the building codes that's correct that's correct yes now there's there's always the chance that in the future as the kids get older and they might need you know they might need their own bedrooms um who knows who knows what we'll do in fact uh joshua this might be a good time to to say um one thing you find when you we, when you try to do um, an alternative um, living situation, you know, alternative to the mortgaged house or an alternative to the on-grid lifestyle, you find that the um, the systems that society has set up have have pretty sticky tentacles. Yeah, I would imagine it'd be hard tra- to build a, a larger house uh, without having it fully meeting all of the code, including electrical code, plumbing code, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. And, and one issue we're facing right now is that, um, the, the insurance on the property, the, the kind of, uh, liability insurance on the property has lapsed for one reason or another. And trying to get new insurance is a nightmare because everyone, even the, even the farm bureau, the farm agency will say something like, wait, you don't have a, you don't have a home out there that we can use as an anchor for this insurance. And so they say, no, can't, we can't talk any further. Wow. So why does your property need to be off grid? Um, let's see it. It doesn't need to be. Yeah, it doesn't need to be. It's some, I, I think really it was more of a challenge that my dad and I gave to ourselves in the beginning as, as a fun challenge. And um, who knows why, what, what influences in our lives made us open to that, you know, that possibility. And, and then as, as we've gone on, it's sort of been a challenge to, um, to, to keep up with that, to, to – um, keep going deeper into that possibility and keep finding creative ways to live like that. Do you think you'll change in the future? I have a feeling that um, in the next three or four years, there'll be another structure out there with an electric freezer. I think that would be the kind of the next step. Uh, One of the goals of, of living on a farmstead 
um, with monastic inspirations or, you know, homestead inspirations down through the ages would be to be self-sufficient in food. Mm-hmm. And um, we do have animals, flocks of sheep and chickens. And so it, it really helps. Uh, it really helps to be able to freeze those um, for eating down down the road. Right, right. Usually when people are off grid, it's often more situational, such as they buy a piece of property and the property is so remote that it's just simply not practical for them to pay the fees to get connected to the power grid. And it's simpler and easier for them to um, just build an off-grid system. Uh, other people, of course, want to be off-grid because they're concerned about being dependent and reliant on the power grid, and so they prefer just to be dependent and reliant upon their own system. But it sounds to me like your uh, decision was more in line with your admiration of monasteries and the love of the simple life. Is that right? That's a fair statement. Yeah, that would be sort of the biggest motivation for us. And um, the, the the great thing, my, my great fortune is that my wife um, heard about it and, and you know, she she agreed to it and, and has come to love it as well. So I feel really lucky about that. It's hard not to walk into, I remember a couple summers ago, I was in an Amish house in, um, uh, I guess it was uh, Ohio. And it was a nice, beautiful, large Amish house. And I was just admiring, I was being given a tour, and I was admiring how it had the, but, but with, with their use of gas for lighting, they had the, the, the convenience of on-demand lighting. Uh, of course, they had heating facilities, so it was warm. It's hard to get around that requirement. Uh, and, and simple cooking uh, facilities with, with gas. Uh, and of course, they also had propane refrigeration. But with the lack of electricity, the house was just peaceful. It just had that simple, peaceful air to it. There weren't, wasn't whirring and humming from all of the electronic devices. There wasn't the invasion of sound with all the noise pollution from the TV and radio. It was just a very peaceful place. So I can see the attraction in that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. I I would agree with that. I m- my comment uh, following on that would be that. During the winter, which is for the little kids is when school starts, it's, it's so much easier to get them to go to bed. The sun goes down early, and um, it's, it's a very natural thing for their bodies to fall asleep at 7 or 6 or 7 right after the sun has gone down. I'm curious about something. I've read that historically in the pre-industrialized era that it was – very normal for humans to sleep in shifts. Uh, oftentimes there would be uh, the first sleep and the second sleep. So people would go to bed at an early, uh, at an early time. They would wake up and they would kind of hang out uh, in the middle of the night together for an hour, a couple hours, depending on the, the situation. Sometimes they would visit with neighbors, sometimes visit with people in their household, and then they would go back to sleep for their second sleep. And based upon the research I did a couple years ago, it seemed like it was that was – Verified, at least there was substantial evidence in that direction from literary history as well. Uh, are you aware of that? And does that happen to you? The second sleep, yes. Especially in the winter, I found myself falling into that pattern, and I really, really enjoy it. Um, what typically would happen to me is I, I would get very sleepy right after eating uh, dinner and would fall asleep by uh, the wood stove or fall asleep as the children were going to bed. And then um, would 
sleep for two or three hours and get up around 11 and perhaps go to the workshop for two hours and then go back to sleep for a second sleep. So yeah, it has happened to me and I have heard of that and I, you know, I, I can vouch for it to a certain extent. How interesting. So you went from, uh, just to be clear, before 2007, you were living a relatively mainstream lifestyle, right? With all of the modern uh, accoutrement that we all, uh, that we all use. Is that right? Yes. And then you made this almost violent transition. What's been the biggest benefits that you have noticed for yourself? Yeah, there's this there's this satisfaction that um, I would say in two directions. The great satisfaction that comes with downsizing and simplifying. Um, I know there's many, many people out there who, who could identify with that. Um, when, when you have only a 12 by 12 space to organize your, you know, your, your books, your clothes. Um, it, f- it just feels really good to be working with less stuff. And uh, <clears throat> so that'd be one, one great area of satisfaction. Another one would be, um, I would say there's, there's this, uh, thrill that comes for me when I realize that certain parts of my, my existence, my, my actual staying alive that I'm now responsible for. And two examples I could give of that would be, um, the firewood, making sure there's enough firewood, actually cutting it, actually splitting it, actually carrying it into the house and making a fire or else you're not going to be warm and you'll be miserable. That, that feels really good. And, and surprisingly, I enjoy all of that, uh, all of that labor. And uh, then there's um, there's there's the part about not being connected to the uh, how would you call it not the electrical grid, but the plumbing grid or the the sewer grid. I I get satisfaction out of the fact that we're kind of taking care of our own you know our own human waste on the on the farmstead through outhouses and and composting and whatnot. So it, it's that sense of responsibility gives gives a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, I would imagine that when you just look around and recognize that you can eliminate or massively reduce your own waste stream, that can lead to a great deal of personal satisfaction. What has been the most difficult aspects of this life change for you? Um, that comes from the the um, there's a tension. Um, there's a tension between remaining involved with, um, so, you know, the society of school, the society of work, um, and then your alternative sort of personal local lifestyle. There's a great tension there. Um, I, I think I think in, in some ways, Joshua, a change to an off-grid lifestyle would be would be simpler or would have less tension if you were never going to leave. If you were sort of like like you said earlier going to live in a very remote place um and you weren't planning to come to town much if ever however um i have small children and at one point i was a school teacher so i had to how would you say i had to maintain appearances and show up to work looking a certain way <laughs> and I had to, you know, you have to drive places and 
and you so you have to have device sometimes for school or job or to fit into that other world you have to have devices like phones and and iPads and things for your kids as well so there there's that tension i would say where you feel like oh i'm 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 not maximizing the potential of of this alternative lifestyle because i i still have a foot in the in the other world um, but that's okay yeah Hard but good. I mean, we're doing a Skype interview right now, which is clearly not being done disconnected from the grid. Uh, you have come into a coffee shop and you're using the internet connection at the coffee shop in order to speak to me. So you're right in the middle of modern society. Uh, and yet when you go home, you'll be in the middle of what, the 1800s, I guess. Right, right. And and just down the road, less than a quarter mile is uh, a cell phone tower. <laughs> so... So, you know, one, one thing I've come to find is that the, the consumerism, and I, I'm sure you've, you've talked about this and dealt with this in your own work and your own website, the consumerism that is baked into the American lifestyle, it's, <clears throat> it's um, in our hearts. It's deep in our hearts and it's hard to get rid of even, even after you, you downsize, even after you do that perhaps multiple times in the last 10 years that I've, you know, that I've been living off the grid, your tendency to accumulate or think that happiness can come from things. It just keeps coming back at you because it's, you know, it starts real early and it's kind of, um, seated in our hearts. Uh, how would you say in the, in the Western, uh, capitalist lifestyle? I'd love to talk a little bit about the finances, uh, and, just have you share as much as you're willing because I think many people would admire what you've done uh, and yet there are benefits of it and, and some of those benefits could be financial. But I'd like to start first with your business, which as I understand from your website is your primary means of support, having a cash inflow to your household. What's the story behind Piedmont Pine Coffins? The story there is is – my wife and I were looking for something that could be um, done with a minimal input of uh, capital right at the start. So basically that means buying certain tools. Um, it could be done off the grid. We wouldn't have to build a factory to start this business. And, um, and also was um, sort of ha- had a good business model and potential to it. And believe it or not, we got the idea from certain monasteries that do this. Um, certain monasteries that are, um, how would you call it? They're not active. Mm-hmm. They're not the kinds that run hospitals or run schools out in the world. They're the kind of monks that they they stay and pray basically in their monastery and they need something to do to, to make their daily bread. And some of them actually bake bread. There's one in New York that does that, New York State. You know, you're probably familiar with the famous ones that make beer and the cheese Trappist and monks. things like that. <laughs> the, yeah, that's the story behind the Trappist monks, right? There's, a, I guess, theoret- one of the either most expensive or most highly praised beers. A friend of mine uh, shared a bottle with me one time, the Trappist Rockfort, something like that. Uh-huh. You're, yes, you're exactly right. And then there's the, the famous phrase from Thomas Merton who, who tongue-in-cheek said, cheese is for Jesus. <laughs> what did that mean? The the uh, the creation of that as a product? 
Yeah, a monastery in Kentucky. That's how they made their uh, money with making cheeses and uh, cheeses for Jesus. He, I like it. <laughs> so, sometimes he felt, I think, as as a, a a mystic, he felt that the cart was before the horse. Sometimes with the business <laughs> aspect of the monastery, indeed. So, so you came across the inspiration that one monastery did woodworking and created these coffins. That's right. That's right. So I'm I'm sort of copying an idea from a monastery in. Uh, Iowa, and one in also one in New Orleans, so this, or Louisiana. Before we go on to more of of that story, tell me more of the businesses. So, so bread baking, beer making, coffin making, cheese making. Can you think of any other monastery businesses? Catalog businesses for prayerful items like cards, uh, voca- vocational. Uh, uh, how would you say it? Um, Prayer books. Um, there are all kinds of catalog items, food, food catalog items like popcorn, specialty popcorns, specialty jams and jellies. Those are a few that I know of. That's interesting. That would be a valuable area for some of my listeners who may be looking for home-based businesses to to do research in that area, uh, because this has been a long this idea of having a a, a business that's near the home place can be done under the same roof or in close quarters and doesn't require a great disruption of lifestyle. There's a long history there with the monasteries needing to earn enough in order to support themselves, but having a desire for a sense of serenity and and simplicity. Uh, so those are some great ideas. Keep going with your story behind the coffin business. So we started in 2013 and uh, the good news is that the the year over years, you know, now we're in 2017. The things have been positive, growing positively every year. Slowly, we need it to grow a little bit faster. Um, however, I'm, you know, I'm really happy with the way things are turning out. And so, your primary business is the creation by hand using hand tools, non-powered tools. You build custom ordered uh, and also some uh, standardized pine coffins for people who desire a simpler coffin. Is that right? That's exactly right. And the hardest part with hand tools is um, is getting the corners right and also building, uh, building a big enough panel, a wide enough panel, so that you can make the sides and the, the lid of the coffin. Um, my solution to that has been to use tongue and groove joints. So there's this fantastic uh, old-fashioned plane Plain meaning that that uh, tool that peels off little thin layers of the wood at a time as you pass it over the wood surface. There's a, a, a plane called a tongue and groove plane, and that um, makes a joint where you know you're familiar with tongue and groove. The tongue slips into mm-hmm. a groove, and you yes. glue those together, and uh, it, it looks really nice. How did you originally start your marketing plan? Right. Well, we we knew that um, certain groups in society favor this type of, of product already. So we <clears throat> we hit those pretty hard, um, and um, that would be of the three Abrahamic faiths, the the Jewish folks and the Muslim folks. They already do this, and they this is what they want. So it was very targeted marketing at the start. Surprisingly, it hasn't worked out so well with. With those groups, um, most of our sales right now are uh, internet sales, um, where people find us on the net, um, and also 
local funeral homes. We've been uh, successful in getting a few local funeral homes to to give us some attention, although that's hard because they historically they already have their their business model and their sort of their contract set up and their cash flow going. You build all of these entirely by yourself or, or do you have a staff of people working with you? So far as it's only me, I, I buy planks from a local mill. So these are, this is North Carolina, Carolina Southern yellow pine that comes from a, 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 a short radius right around um, central North Carolina. And uh, the, the planks are already planed when I pick them up and I take it from there with the hand tools. And you ship them uh, all over the place or, or just locally? Yes. In an exciting development, um, we just scored our first sort of retail sale. A retail store, a natural burial retail store is opening next month in north of New York City. And they're carrying our products. Do you think this business is replicatable for others with similar values to your own? I do think so. Um, I think there could be one in every state, to be quite honest. You know, there are there are so many funeral homes um, that it, it takes a lot of convincing. I, I won't say it has. I won't say it's been easy. Um, there are already hand tool and small time coffin makers in Nova Scotia, um, in Charlotte, in Washington. Um, there's one in Arizona. So they're already peppered around the United States, and I think there's room for more. How much do you sell your coffins for? We have the plans, as you mentioned. A person can buy the plans and make their own coffin for under $200. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I highly recommend it. There's also a model we sell for 800 for twelve hundred and for eighteen hundred, and uh, the the one that costs uh, the most, it's because of those corners, which I said are so, it's so important to get right in a in a box that needs to be strong. And so with 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 that box, we do dovetail uh, hand cut dovetail corners. Wow! And that's um yeah, that's hard to do, and it takes a long time. So that's why it costs the most. I was just struck by there's this increasing flow of people back to simpler items, uh, artisanal, hand-worked items definitely have a strong appeal in the marketplace. And so if somebody's looking just to save money, uh, of course, they could do a DIY using your plans, as you said, for under $200 of of materials. But... uh, to me, just the, the simplicity and the simple beauty of a simple pine box certainly has an appeal to many of us, uh, and, and it's just a neat, a neat business. I'd love to hear more about uh, the finances of the homestead. Do you have any sense of what it costs you to live a lifestyle like you're living or of how much money your family spends as compared to the average U.S. American household? Yes, I don't have at my fingertips um, hard numbers for you. I did, however, think about this ahead of time, Joshua. And what what I came up with is the the general rule that it's cheaper, but it's not cheap. In other words, we have fewer bills. And because of that tension I mentioned earlier, we still have costs out in, you know, out in the world. So, um, 
there, how should I put this? It's, it's not cheap to, it wasn't cheap to build those cabins in the beginning. Um, it, it wasn't cheap to, you know, it's not never cheap to maintain an automobile um, or to ha- you know, to own an automobile, those kinds of things. And um, so, you know, I, I could easily see, um, I could easily see ways to do it with less startup capital than, than we did. In, in, in our case, my dad had sold a house in Pennsylvania right before the real estate crash. <laughs> so he had, some, he had some capital to help this project get off the ground. What if you were um, 220-somethings who had never had a job before? Um, it, it, it might be harder. You might find yourself needing um, some provisional housing before building a, a permanent structure. Does that does that answer your question about the sort of the the sense of things I have? Yeah, especially when you start moving into a rural environment, many things in a rural environment are just simply going to cost more. Things that would be inexpensive in an urban environment can be very expensive in a rural environment. Uh, first, many people who are buying move move to a rural environment because they can buy land at a lower cost. But yet, then anytime you go into town or anytime you try to get get something, it's going to be miles on the car, fuel used up, uh, etc. And then when you're starting everything from scratch, uh, my guess would be that it would be far cheaper and easier to buy an old house with a little bit of land in the middle of the city and move in because you can get going right away versus buying everything from scratch. I remember when I first became a homeowner, I was going to uh, – I went to the big box store to buy a box of nails and I was stunned at how expensive nails were. It's just one of those things that you never really count the cost of when you're just using a couple here and there. But when you need a whole box or when you're going to build a project, you're going to be spending a lot of money on nails. And all of those costs <laughs> come right at the beginning to build out your infrastructure. So even if you can dispense with the costs, some of the costs of electricity, plumbing, etc., first, you still have to replace the functionality in a different way. Uh, and also, you still have all of the hard costs of getting things started. So definitely, I don't think it's for those – those who don't have capital should not move to the country to set up an off-grid lifestyle. That, that's a really fair way to put it, Joshua. Yeah. Now, uh, like I said, I could imagine um, a cheaper way to do it than we did. For example, um, I, I don't think there's, there's any uh, government authority that could prevent me – from pitching a tent on you know on land that I own, or having a teepee, or perhaps even a, a movable yurt, and and using that as a semi-permanent situation, I I don't think they could really have any any say over that. You know, it's it's your land, and as long as you pay the real estate taxes, what are they going to say about a tent? What I can't camp here. Right. Um, however, as as soon as you start. Um, as soon as you start getting close to those sticky tentacles of, of building codes and, and things like that, yeah, then, then it starts to cost money. And also your own personal level of skills will make a huge difference. Uh, in the old days, the reason that a homesteader could, homesteader could go out and carve, an acre, carve a lifestyle out of a section of land 
one of the reasons was they had significant skills and significant knowledge, uh, and many of them didn't make it. But yet they had a basic understanding and a basic experience in a diverse array of skills that today are practically lost. And to replace those skills, to be able to go and to build or to build with traditional tools, traditional equipment, to know how to grow, to know how to care for animals, etc., there's a huge amount of knowledge that has to be built up. That's just not a common, uh, a common heritage for us today. And then also, uh, you know, what's the basic level of comfort? If, as I've studied old, old-time homesteaders, uh, there's a reason why, although you could build a house out of sod in the western plains of the United States, cutting chunks of dirt and grass out and build, build a house, you could do that. But there's a reason why everyone who had a sod house couldn't wait to get into a house made out of wood because it was a dreadful existence. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when you think about modern society, you were fortunate to attract a wife that was interested in that. Uh, th- things like that. Other people might not be so interested in actually coming and joining you for your adventure. And so you've got to maintain a certain social standing just for the hope of attracting to you other people who are who are willing to make a change from the modern society, but not yet to go down to that lowest of existence. Yes, um, you're exactly right. And, and back when I used to be a teacher for, for several years in, in the local school system, um, there, wasn't, there wasn't a day that I'm aware of where I showed up to work. And, and mind you, I taught ninth graders and 10th graders. So there, you know, there's some of the, the harshest opinions out there. <laughs> and there wasn't a day that I showed up where someone said, "Wow, that that's a strange, strange man. He he must not <laughs> he must not live in a normal way. His his clothes are dirty, or he his hair is oily, or something like that." And um, you know, like you say, there there's a you have to maintain a, a certain social acceptance unless unless you don't have that type of job anymore. And I, I do feel that since I went full-time with Piedmont Pine Coffins that I have changed. And, you know, I have changed in, in certain ways. There's, there's certain, um, certain things that used to be no you know, I, I couldn't get away with. And now I can. Now I can, um, I can wear the, the same work clothes, same, the, same, wear the same pants for three days in a row if I'd like to. Um, and that freedom is uh, is really enjoyable, believe me. My wife and I have enjoyed watching a couple of these reality shows where they send young modern couples out into the wilderness. And uh, there was one that Cana- the Canadians did. I can't come up with the name of it. But they sent two couples out into, uh, into the Canadian tundra. Uh, and tundra isn't the right word. Into the Canadian plains. And they were con- instructed to build cabins and, and live out there for a year. Uh, and it was much better than the PBS one. It was just much more real. One of the first things, one of the first changes that the people quickly, <laughs> quickly changed was sanit- you know, modern sanitary sta- uh, standards. It's very uh-huh. difficult to maintain this idea of a bath a day uh, and fresh clothes every day. You can't do that without some of the modern technology. At least, never mind, you did it. But you can't do it with a lot, yeah. a lot of extra focus and a lot of extra work. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 exactly right. And um, two two of the secrets here, um, here I'll, I'll tell you um, two of the kind of the biggest changes that that might interest your podcast listeners. Um, the first one is bucket baths. 
that has been that has for most of my family that has proven to be the solution sure there's an outdoor shower that we've built with you know a gravity fed water system and that works great when when the black hose is in the sun and it's you know 80 degrees or above outside <laughs> but for the the other 10 months of the year <laughs> the best thing to do is is heat some water we we do have a propane burner in our in our uh living cabin heat some water and um and take sort of a bath in the bucket by the fireplace. And it's, it's, if if you look at it in a certain way, it's quite romantic, you know, as far as uh, an experience, a rich, uh, earthy living experience. And uh, um, yeah, I just love it. And it's, it's worked for 10 years. The other, the other part um, that's a big change is not having indoor plumbing. And so what does a family do for when you're brushing your teeth? What do you do with when you wash your hands inside? Um, so check it out. We brought back, you'll love this, the ancient concept of the spittoon or the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bucket, basically. There's a bucket. And um, yeah, so that's a collection point for all the gray water in the, the sort of the daily routines of the household. And uh since since our cabin's in the wood, that can be simply pitched out into the to nourish the trees. Um, one one disappointment I, I that that I've had over the years is that I realize that even though the system works for us, that it's that not everything we do is scalable. Mm-hmm. Can you just imagine if everyone in the city started pitching their gray water out the windows? Right. Or if everybody needed to, in the whole Western Hemisphere, decided to heat with firewood again. Right. So, you know, I, 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 I hope people can do something to make, you know, to, to pick alternates and make, pick meaningful choices to, you know, to change their lives. It's just that not everyone can do exactly this. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, if you want to know what it's like, just go visit any slum or favela in a, in a third world country and you'll quickly find out what a blessing it is when people have plumbing uh, that, that works well. Uh, and Right, right. I, yeah. I, I personally, I, I don't... I don't understand why we constantly choose to contaminate our drinking water with human feces. But on the other hand, I find it difficult to argue with the dramatic health impacts and benefits that that has provided in uh, what I know of human history. So, uh, you know, my thought, before I do, I want to ask you a question. Are you a purist in this approach? For example, do you use a flashlight? If you need to go out to the outhouse at night I, uh, and you're not going to use a chamber pot in the house, do you use a flashlight or do you, are you a purist in the sense that you take your gas lantern with you? Uh-huh. We've, we've done both, Joshua. We've done, we've tried uh, lots of different things. Um, and uh, for many years, we used, he- uh, we used camping headlamps so a little Petzl headlamp. For many years, years I used uh, regular um, lead batteries in those, and only recently was able to set up a, a solar recharging station for those, um, which I feel much better about. So no, I'm not a purist. Because yeah, that to me seems to be the sweet spot, is to appreciate the past. And to, just for me, I'm not saying for you, but I, I look at it and I say, what can we appreciate from the past? What can we learn from the past? We tend to gloss over the ancient technologies. Uh, simple example, you're in North Carolina. Just this last week, I was traveling, a uh, couple weeks ago, I was traveling with my family, and we were visiting various lighthouses. 
And uh, I'm fascinated with the concept of being able to build a house that can be maintained cool without the need for an air conditioner. Uh, I'm a little bit jealous of those in northern climates because, to me, the problem of how to build a house that is off-grid that can stay warm is so easily solved. But the the problem of building a house that can stay cool without air conditioning is much bigger. So I was traveling. uh, We were traveling. We were visiting Tybee Island, Georgia, and we went Uh out to the Tybee Island Lighthouse. And there at the lighthouse, they have restored the lighthouse and also the lighthouse keepers' cottages, and they've restored them back to uh, as close to their original construction as they can they can do, uh, including original roofing, etc. Well, in this house, I was fascinated to see they had some pieces of technology, which I think we would be well served to pay attention to. Uh, One of the best was that they had built a cistern right underneath the kitchen. Uh, The house originally had an external kitchen, uh, much like you have. But then later they'd added on a kitchen onto the original structure and they built a concrete cistern right underneath the kitchen. And so before running water, they put in a, a hand pump that would mm. just dip right down into that cistern underneath the house, and they had plenty of water right there in the kitchen where they needed it uh, without needing to go outside. Just thought it was fantastic, and to have that water storage was a really good idea. Another feature they had was in the actual construction of the house, they had what looked like closets. But upon closer inspection, they weren't closets. What they were is they were air ducts. And they had windows that opened up to them and then curved walls. And the design behind them was they would use these windows as a way of collecting breezes but then diverting it with the use of the curved wall into the sitting rooms. So there would be a constant cross flow of, of air right through the center of the house. These are aspects of technology and engineering that we don't pay a lot of attention to. Uh, because they don't, they can, you know, the, the idea of having a house be as airy as possible is in direct contradiction with the idea of having a house being as buttoned up as possible for energy efficiency. Uh-huh. So I, I, I say, let's look back at those and let's understand them, the technologies, and let's try to appreciate them, and then look for ways to improve them. Uh, modern. You know, I assume you're using modern uh, uh, nickel metal hydride rechargeable batteries in in your headlamps. That type of uh, a battery charger hooked up with a AA battery charger hooked up to a solar system that also has a battery backup, that is a fantastic piece of technology and is vastly superior to a kerosene lantern. Um, but you're accomplishing, <laughs> <laughs> you're accomplishing the same type of benefits of illumination with appropriate technology that doesn't, uh, that's not as destructive as some of the other modern ways of living. Yes, and uh, and as far as inexpensive funerals, some things from the past that we can appreciate and and uh, we can you know we can actually skip in the modern in in the modern day in the modern funeral we can skip uh, believe it or not embalming we can even skip a casket we can skip the vault <clears throat> we can skip the uh, the entire funeral home experience altogether if we wish and uh, part of our mission at Piedmont Pine Coffins is to. Uh, let people know about an alternative or DIY type of uh, a funeral. So that's a good segue. Uh, how did you first get interested in the concept of green burial? Well, um, 
when I was doing research, it, it had to be when I was doing research for the um, for starting the business and also reflecting on the, you know, sort of the experiences I'd had with my own family members um, who had been buried or died in the last 20 years. Um, <clears throat> things I wish had gone differently. Um, in particular, uh, I w- looking back now that I know what I know, I wish I'd had more time to spend in the home with my mom when she died. And uh, it's it's so common for um, for us to treat a dead body as as a health crisis or an emergency. Um, you know, she died. Let, call, call the funeral home and let's let's get this right. dead she, body out of here. She's gonna be crawling with bugs in five minutes. We've got to nobody touch her. Yeah, exactly. So I, looking back, I wish I had more time to to simply sit there and and. Uh, Appreciate that moment. So um, uh, another big uh, another big influence in that respect is the Home Funeral Alliance dot um, org. They have a website, the National Home Funeral Alliance. Um, and uh, listeners who want to know more about DIY approaches to to funerals would do well to look at that website, homefuneralalliance.org. And <clears throat> I, I spent some time with. Um, at, at their their uh, biennial conferences, and that group is is really an amazing group. I see them as almost superhuman or extra human persons, mostly because of their uh, the time they've spent um, in that how would you call it in that garden between the worlds. They've they've sat with with dying folks and their families. They've sat in the room just before and just after, and uh, it really changes them. Um, and here's how I know it. They they tell <clears throat> they tell you simple stories of of memorable deaths that they have uh, helped with, and um, within within a moment or two you're hooked, and by the end of the story you're on the edge of your seat and you're holding back tears, even if you never knew the person, even if they were in a you know far away state. Um, and these women, they're usually women, though sometimes these home funeral guides are, are men, but these women are, they're, they're, um, they're simply radiant. And uh, I, w- I was touched and moved by, by being with them. Yeah, when I, that was how I came across your, your site was just by researching that. And it definitely, it's hard to know the right words to use. It definitely does kind of seem more, it seemed I, I was I was touched by their stories of how the process of preparing the body of a loved one for burial, uh, how even just that process can be a very emotionally important process. Uh, it can feel very rushed to say, "Okay, this person's dead now. We got to get their body out." But the whole traditional process of cleaning them, washing them, dressing the body, preparing it for burial, can be a very uh, emotionally satisfying time to to grieve and to mourn and to weep, but also to love and to serve the memory of somebody as you prepare their body for burial. I I definitely was also deeply attracted to it in in, in that sense of emotional satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, the the duty to the duty to at least symbolically carry our loved ones all the way to the end and and beyond it. You know, I, th- I think that's what it really is. You know, we carry each other 
and like you say that um, those acts of preparing the body can can uh, start the healing. I think it ties back into some of what perhaps you've been trying to achieve with your transition to a simpler uh, off the grid lifestyle of just a sense of closeness with the normal ebb and flow of life. It can be very easy in our modern world to just be swept along with the current. And so many of the simple life events that used to be so common today have taken on uncommon characteristics. For me, I always think of uh, the birth of a child. My wife and I have chosen to have our children at home. And prior to having children, the only thing I ever knew of childbirth was what you would see on TV or or would see in the movies, which was a very jarring, uh, draining, loud, um, you know, difficult experience. And when we compare that to the experience of having our children in the privacy of our home uh, in a beautiful, warm, homey atmosphere, it's just night and day. And I think the same way with regard to uh, the concept of funeral. Uh, why would you take what should be this intimate, emotional experience and and disrupt it uh, with other people and bright fluorescent lights and uh, industrial equipment, et cetera, if there are ways to to avoid it. So it, it, I definitely feel the same uh, kind of sense of, of connection to the, to the process that you describe. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. There's a, there's a saying out there, um, death is not the opposite of life as we tend to see it. It's the opposite of birth. And, uh, I bet you're right, Josh, that, um, I bet you're right that the, the only two, um, experiences that are that intimate are birth, you know, the birth of a child and being there for that. And then the death of a loved one and being there right. for and through that. Right. Absolutely. Well, Don, this has been so interesting to hear a little bit of your story. And uh, as we close here, of course, uh, Piedmont Pine Coffins, uh, you do beautiful work for anybody who would be interested in either the $5 coffin plans that I previously referenced on the show or in simply purchasing a completed coffin uh, from you, somebody who wants to have a beautiful handmade um, wooden coffin uh, to use for themselves or for a family member. Uh, I encourage you to check out Piedmont Pine Coffins. For those of you who are in North Carolina who'd like to uh, buy local as well, uh, I know there's seems to me a thriving by local movement in in North Carolina this could be a good option for you um, as we go any kind of final thoughts or words of advice to people who are interested in your story and who are interested in in pursuing uh, similar values in their own lives yeah I would say that um, you know once you make the decision to try something alternative, then you're already, you know, 90% of the way there. The rest of it is just the slow, uh, the slow, uh, patient steps of trying different things and then um, realizing that you're already succeeding just by trying. So I say go for it. Don, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. 
buy rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.